turn to John chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be talking about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10. We're going to continue our study this morning as we've been looking at John's Gospel the past few weeks. And um, I, I appreciate the comments you made. Many of you have found this to be a very rich study, and I have certainly been enjoying it. Uh, too, and working through this gospel that tells us so much about the character and the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me read part of it for us this morning as we begin. John 10, beginning at verse 1. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter by the sheep pen, but by the gate, or by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father... And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the saints of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us today to understand what your scripture is saying about Jesus as our shepherd and as the gate. For the sheep. Amen. Well, the passage that we are studying this morning contains one of the most well-loved images in all of Scripture. It is the image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. It has been portrayed in numerous pictures that show Jesus as a shepherd. It's been sung in songs or hymns like the one we sang today, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. And it's been the theme for countless messages through the years. And I think the reason it has such universal appeal is because all of us can understand and relate to what a shepherd is like. 
And mostly we tend to think of that shepherd's intimate knowledge of his flock and his tender nurture and care for his sheep. It's found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in different places in some of the most uh, beloved passages of Scripture, like Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, or this particular text in John 10. So the analogy of a shepherd tells us something about Jesus. But the analogy of a shepherd also tells us something about ourselves as sheep. We are the flock under his care. Now I hate to say it, but sheep aren't real bright. To give some examples of that, they can wander easily. They will follow paths into dangerous situations like to the edge of a cliff or down some narrow kind of divide where they get trapped. And at the same time, they might walk past some excellent forage along the way. They are both timid and stubborn. They can be frightened easily, and yet at other times you can't get them to move for anything. They are absolutely defenseless against predators. They don't have any way to fight off predators or wolves. They just kind of circle up or try to huddle together in some way. But they don't have a way to fight back. It's been said, in fact, about sheep that out of all of the animals that we have domesticated, sheep take the most work. Now, I didn't have the opportunity to work with sheep when I was growing up on a farm, but my father did. In fact, they took care of a lot of sheep and their family through the years. And there are some things that are peculiar to sheep, too, some peculiar problems that they can have as well. And Philip Keller tells us about that in his book, uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. There's this problem that sheep can have being called a cast sheep. That's when they lay down and they kind of tip over and they just can't get themselves up. And Philip Keller writes about that when he said that even the largest fattest, strongest, and sometimes healthiest sheep can become cast and become a casualty. The way it happens is this. A heavy, fat, or long fleece sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or grassy area or depression in the ground, and it may roll on its side slightly just to stretch out or relax. But suddenly the center of gravity in the body shifts and its feet aren't touching the ground, and it tries to wiggle around and then begin to puff frantically, and it only makes things worse until finally they're on their back and their feet are in the air, and there's no way that they're going to get up again. If left in that condition, they can die. It takes a shepherd to come along and to tip them back up and massage their legs and get them walking again. Bob Smith, who used to teach at or who taught for many years at Bethel College, used to say about sheep that the existence of sheep was prima facie evidence against the theory of evolution. There's no way that sheep would have survived if evolution was true. Well, all of this is to say we need a shepherd. We need a shepherd very badly. And John tells us who that shepherd is and what that shepherd is like. This morning we're going to look at, first of all, the heart of the Good Shepherd. And John tells us here in these uh, words of Jesus that the Good Shepherd is one who knows us. 
And He knows everything about us. He knows us by name. He knows the trials that we are going through, the difficulties in our life. He knows our personality, our traits, our tendency to wander. He knows our heart. He begins here by saying, I tell you the truth. Now, whenever Jesus used that phrase, it was calling attention to something that was very important. It's the phrase in the King James, Verily, verily, or Amen, Amen, I tell you the truth. Listen to this. What I'm about to say is very important. And he talks about this relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And he said, The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. Now he begins his illustration here by talking about something that was common in their day, but is less so for us. He talks about a sheep pen, a holding place for sheep. And in Jesus' day, there were two kinds of sheep pens, and both are referred to in this text. That's what can make it a little bit confusing if you're not clear about what he's talking about. And these two kind of sheep pens were this. One was found in the country and one was found in a village. The one that was in the country, in the wild, or in areas where there were pasture might be as simple as a a pile of rocks that were set up to make a wall or a fence, so to speak, with one opening. It was very simple, very crude. They would just bring their sheep into this enclosure. Or it might also be a cave if they were in the hill country. A cave that would be used to shelter the sheep at night and then the shepherd would stay at the entrance. That's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about I am the gate, and we'll explain that in a little bit. The other kind of sheep pen that was found in the village was one where many shepherds would come in, and this was a larger enclosure, and all of them would bring their sheep into that particular sheep pen. And then in the morning, there would be a watchman who was there over the night But in the morning, that shepherd would come and he would call his sheep by name. And only his sheep would respond. Out of all these sheep that are mixed together, his sheep would know his voice and come out and he would lead them to pasture. A very interesting thing to watch and see how the sheep know their shepherd and discern his voice. Jesus also tells us here that there are two kinds of shepherds. There are those that are true shepherds and there are those that were called false shepherds. The true shepherd knows his sheep and leads them to safety. The false shepherds are like these thieves and robbers and thieves implies trickery or deception. A thief is someone who by trickery is trying to take what you have. A robber here in this context refers to someone who uses violence or plundering or force to take what someone else has. And he describes these shepherds who were to have been good and godly and led God's people as false shepherds. He's talking about the religious leaders of that time in which he lives. He's talking about the very people that he is addressing as he shares this parable who really are thieves and robbers when it comes to God's people. The true shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name, and they recognize his voice. The word that's used here to know means more than just a knowledge of facts. It implies a relationship of trust and intimacy. 
Jesus knows His sheep as well as the Father knows the Son. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? That Jesus knows His sheep as intimately as the Father knows the Son. It should be a great comfort to us that when we come before Him, we're not coming to a God who doesn't understand our needs or doesn't know them. It's not like when we come to Him in prayer, we have to tell Him everything that's going on. He already knows what's happening in our life. We come to one who is fully aware and who cares for us, like a tender, loving shepherd. And secondly, what Jesus tells us in this passage is not only does He know us, but He, the Good Shepherd, provides for us. And we see that in verses 7 to 10. The greatest gift that He provides is that of salvation. And when we enter by faith into a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, He gives us that gift of salvation. But He's also that shepherd who provides pasture for us. He provides for our daily needs, our daily bread, if you will. And He provides life, abundant life, eternal life. He said in John 10.10 that I have come that they might have life and might have it to the full. God wants us to experience life as He intends. Life that is truly meaningful. Life that has a sense of purpose and direction to it. Life that brings joy and hope and peace and forgiveness of sins. Life that's filled with meaningful relationships. A sense of God's favor. A joy that comes from walking with Him every day. That's what Jesus meant here. I want you to experience that kind of life here and now and life that will last for all of eternity. But in contrast, He tells us that the thief, that is, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And we can see the evidence of His work in our world everywhere we look. We see it in the wars, in the greed, in the immorality, in the idolatry, in the injustice in the depravity of man. And into our world, Jesus comes to bring life. And there's only one way to find that life. It is through faith in Christ. That's what Jesus means when He says, I am the gate. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. And again in verse 9, I am the gate, and whoever enters through Me will be saved. Many years ago, G. Campbell Morgan, who was one of the greatest preachers of his age, was traveling across the Atlantic on a steamship. And he met on that steamship another passenger who was a very well-known Old Testament scholar, Sir George Adam Smith. The two of them connected on that trip, and they were talking and sharing stories back and forth. And Morgan said that among the stories that Sir George told was of an encounter he had one time when he was traveling in the Middle East. He was traveling one day with a guide, and they came upon a shepherd and his sheep. And he fell into a conversation with them, and the man showed him the sheep pen into which the sheep were led at night. And he asked them some questions about that, and he asked them to explain the situation. And this particular pen consisted of four walls with a way in. 
And Sir George said to him, That's where they go at night then. And he said, Yes. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. But there's no door, said Sir George. And the shepherd said, I am the door. And this man was not a Christian. He wasn't familiar with the New Testament. He was an Arab speaking from a shepherd's standpoint. And Sir George looked at him and said, What do you mean by the door? And the shepherd said, When the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie across the open space. And no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. That's exactly what Jesus meant in this reference. That I'm the gate. I'm the only lawful way in. And no one leaves except by me and no one comes in except by me. And He is there to watch over us, to lead us out to safe pasture and to take us to those pleasant places. And He is also there to protect us from evil. That's the third thing that this passage tells us about Jesus as the good path, as the good shepherd. He protects us, and we see that in verses 11 and following. When he says that I am the good shepherd, and he tells us that he lays down his life for the sheep in verse 11. The idea of the good shepherd comes from the Old Testament passages like Psalm 23, but it also comes from Ezekiel 34, from the passage that uh, the worship team read for us in the service earlier. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God was rebuking through Ezekiel the false prophets of that day who had not uh, stood firm when it came to the Word of God. They had wandered away. They had moved into idolatry and syncretism and false worship. And they were not good shepherds for the flock. And so in that context, God spoke. And He said, One day, I am going to place over my flock one shepherd, my servant David. And who was He talking about there? He was talking about His Son, Jesus Christ, who would be that descendant of David. And He said, He will lead them. He will feed them. He will tend them as a shepherd with that kind of pure heart and right heart as I intend. How will you know Him? He's the one who will lay down His life for the sheep. He's the one that will come in My name. He's not like a hired hand who runs away. Verse 12 says that the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The Mishnah to the Jewish people spelled out the responsibilities of a hired hand. It said if there was one wolf, the shepherd or the hired hand was required to stay and defend the flock. But if there were two wolves or more, it was an unfortunate accident. And he was not responsible for what happened to the sheep. He would run away. But the owner, the good shepherd, is not like that. And Jesus says, I will not run away. I will lay down my life for the sheep. The thief is interested in himself and not the sheep. The hired hand cares only about his wages and not the sheep. But Jesus, the good shepherd, cares about the sheep. And so he lays down his life for us. 
When you go on in this text, he also tells us some other interesting things about his role. He tells us in verse 16, for example, that I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who is he talking about there when he says that I have other sheep? Who are those sheep? Well, they are the Gentiles who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And throughout John's Gospel, you see this sprinkling that the good news is for more than just the Jews. Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jewish people. He's the Savior of all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. And one day He will bring them together as one flock with one shepherd. If you look at verse 18, He says something else very powerful. He says concerning his own life that no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. And this command I receive from my Father. You see, Jesus' death was not an accident and it wasn't a tragedy. James Montgomery Boy says that Jesus' death was and is the great turning point in history. It was planned before the foundations of the world. In other words, before there was a garden in Eden, there was a cross on Calvary. That God knew exactly what He was going to do to redeem mankind from their sin. Revelation 13.8 says that He was the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And I love that passage, the way he puts it, when he says of his life that he had the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. You know that word is used in other places in Greek in the New Testament? And that word to lay it down and to take it up again is used of like laying aside a garment or taking off your coat and laying it down. And then when you want to take it up, you take it up and you put it on again. For Jesus to lay down His life and to take it up again was as easy as it is for you and I to take off our coat and put it back on again. That's power. That's authority. It was given to Jesus by His Father to be able to do that. No one can do that but God. So here we have a look at the character of the Good Shepherd who loves us, who cares for us, who knows us, who provides for us, who protects us. And in the second part of this chapter, it talks about the identity of the Good Shepherd, which we know to be Jesus, but at that time, the Jewish leaders did not know who He was. Take a look at verses 22 and following. John tells us, Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Let me make a comment there. The Feast of Dedication is a celebration that we call Hanukkah. And so the note that it was winter makes sense. You know, people today celebrate Hanukkah just before Christmas in December. And so here is Jesus. It's the time now for the Feast of Dedication that celebrates this victory that the Jews had won in overthrowing Antiochus Epiphanes after he had desecrated the temple. And Jesus is in the temple area, but He's on the east side of the temple in what was called Solomon's Colonnade. It overlooked the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives to the east. And so He's walking in this area. 
And what happens? The Jews, that is again, the Jewish leaders, the authorities, gathered around him. In fact, it gives the idea that they encircled him or kind of penned him in there. And they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They wanted to know, Jesus, are you the Christ? You've been speaking in these different ways. You've kind of been hinting at that. Tell us plainly. And how does Jesus reply? In verse 25, He said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I did tell you that I am the Christ. You just didn't believe it. I said, look at the miracles that I've done. Do they not give evidence of who I am? Look at my sheep. Look at those who do believe me. Look at the disciples. Look at those who are willing to give up what they have to follow me. They know my voice. I know them. And finally, he says in this open declaration, I and the Father are one. Not one person, but one in essence. What we believe about the Trinity is that there is one God who exists in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is claiming here. That I and the Father are one. One in essence. We are of the same nature. And what did the Jews do? Verse 31. Again the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood what he was saying. He was making it very clear that he was claiming to be God. And Jesus answered them in verse 34, and he said, Is it not written in your law that I have said that you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you then accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. This is a passage that needs some explanation. And in part it needs some explanation because of the way that the Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints, understands this passage. You know, when Jesus quoted the Old Testament here, he was quoting from Psalm 82 in a passage that says, You are gods. In the Mormon theology, they take to believe that that means that we are all gods, that Jesus was just our elder brother and one day we will become like him and be sort of gods and have our own you know, planet and solar system to rule or things like that. I mean, there's a lot of things that have been attached to it. 
But that's not at all what Jesus was saying here. It's a misunderstanding of the text, and you need to go back to Psalm 82 to find out what he was talking about. And Psalm 82 is a passage in which it's kind of interesting. It pictures the kings and rulers and judges of this world being brought before the great king. And they are being brought before the great king to give an account for the way in which they rule. And they are called gods, small g, not divine, but they are called gods in the sense that that is the way in which many people looked at kings and rulers in that day and age. Again, they are not gods. It is just using that term as a figure of speech. And these individuals are brought before the one God, the great king. And they are asked to give an account for the way in which they ruled in their country. And in particular, for the way in which they treated the poor and the oppressed. Imagine that the day is coming when all of the kings and rulers and judges in our world will stand before Christ. And He will ask them to give an account for their administration. Did you defend the weak and the oppressed? Did you help the poor? Were you concerned about the needy in your land? Or did you show favoritism to the rich? Or favoritism to the wicked? Or did you rule as I intended? It's a really sobering passage when seen in its proper interpretation. How Jesus was applying that here was He was really kind of stumping these religious leaders again. Because He is saying that if mere mortals, kings and rulers and judges can be called, quote, gods in the Old Testament, how much more can the one the Father has sent be called God's Son? It was enough to make them think and he slipped out of their grasp once again. How many times have we seen that now in John? Where they have come, they've wanted to seize him, they wanted to arrest him, they wanted to take him by force, but Jesus has escaped from their grasp every single time because no one is going to take his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And nothing will happen to Jesus until the appointed time. So he escapes from their grasp and he travels east of the Jordan to the area of Perea. Verse 40 tells us, Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And here he stayed and many people came to him and they said, Though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place many believed in Jesus. In Jerusalem, they rejected him. In Perea, they welcomed him. There is perhaps another picture of what is happening here that comes from the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, because the nation of Israel had rejected God's leadership and moved so far away in their worship, there was a picture there where the Shekinah glory left the temple. It went out from the temple over the threshold. It went out of the gates. It went to the east. It went up over the Mount of Olives. And it left the city of Jerusalem. That's exactly the same path that Jesus is following here. Jesus 
the Shekinah glory, the one and only God, now leaves the temple mount and he will not return again until his death by crucifixion. He leaves and he departs from Solomon's colonnade on the east side of the temple over the Mount of Olives to the east, to Perea. And they welcomed him there. I want you to think about this passage today by way of application, and I ask you the question, do you know the Good Shepherd? And do you need him today to be your comfort or guide or protector or provider? All of us have things that are going on in our life. We all have circumstances, challenges that we are facing. We're facing as a church needs, as we have as a ministry, and we come to him as our shepherd to lead and guide us. But that also happens for us as individuals. And I want to encourage you as we close today to bring those needs to him in prayer. Because he is the good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Shepherd. And we come today and we bring You our needs, those things that weigh on our heart, the challenges that we are facing, concerns maybe for our children, maybe it's for a family member, a relative, maybe it's someone we know who's hospitalized today, or maybe it's someone we've been praying for for a long time that doesn't know Christ And we desire with all our heart that they would know the Good Shepherd too. As we bring those many requests before you today, Father, would you hear us and grant our prayers? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.